blessing. What a great start, uh, that message, Dad. Thank you very much. I'm always blessed and fed by his preaching, and, and I get to call him every week and discuss things of God's Word, and I'm privileged to be able to do that and try to take advantage of that as often as I can. And um, I've got two, of course, we have two different sessions here, um, and this one's going to be a little more teachy, okay? So you'll just have to bear with us on that. And then the next one will be more preachy. So if you've always wondered what's the difference, you get to see today. So you get to experience. So let's start in Romans chapter 7. And then um, if you want, you can put something, hold your place in Matthew chapter number 1. Because we'll go back uh, to that. But Romans chapter number 7 to get us started off uh, here this morning. And let me say a big thank you to Pleasant Mill Baptist Church. It's very obvious you put time and prayer and work into this meeting. And I know I speak in behalf of a lot of people when we say thank you. Uh, just for, one, for having the meeting. Uh, but then I know even this last week, uh, you met after service every night to pray just for this meeting. And that says a lot about your heart, that in a time when God is feeding your church, you still took time to pray for this group that's coming in, and I personally thank you for that, and I know others do as well. So Romans chapter number 7, let's do this. Let's go ahead and pray as we get started, and then we'll read a little bit here and uh, get into uh, the thought for this morning. Lord, we do thank you for what we have heard already, the tremendous challenge, the reminder from your word And we find ourselves blessed and grateful for what we've been able to hear. And, of course, challenged that we can not just be hearers of the word, uh, but that we can be doers. And so thank you for giving that message to Dad and his willingness to share it with us. And pray that you'll speak to us through this time. Help us as we dig into your word, as we strive to become the men that you would desire us to be. And that is the the purpose, that is one of the desires of this meeting, that we can not just be manly men in a world sense, but to be godly men. And so help us to do that, help us to grow in that area today. And in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 7 is certainly a familiar portion of scripture as Paul is opening up his heart about his own spiritual struggles And perhaps, um, you know, when you read the life of Paul, it's easy to feel like we cannot relate. Uh, Because if you just read his beginning, the way that he crucified Christians, uh, we can't necessarily relate to that. Maybe you had a past that you despised Christians or were not interested, but I would doubt very much that you went around slaying Christians. And so we find his past very extreme, but then we also find the way that God used him very extreme. Uh, The Lord did not call him to to marriage and moved him all across the country, starting churches, being beaten up, being left for dead, and and writing so much of God's word. And so even though without question we admire Paul, I think sometimes we struggle to relate with Paul if it were not for Romans chapter 7. Because Romans chapter 7 is most definitely a chapter that every person in here can say, I can relate to that. I know exactly what you are saying, Paul. 
And so Romans chapter 7, let's start in verse 14. As, and again, you're, gonna, you're, you're very familiar with this portion of scripture, but he says in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, and now he's going to recognize the problem, but I am carnal. Right? This is the problem. There is a spiritual, but it's not me. Right? So the law is spiritual, given by God, put in place by God, but I am carnal, sold under sin. That lets him know I am a slave to sin. And so, verse 15, for that which I do, I allow not, for what I would. Has anybody had a thought that you did not allow? Has anybody had, um, has anybody had your mind ask you if it could think something first? That's just not the way it works. And so he says, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. I've heard people say this. If you were really sorry, you wouldn't keep doing it. I don't think that's true. Because Paul said, I hate the things that I'm doing. I hate the fact that I am... And, and we know this phrase, the Lord used it, they are, God used it towards Israel. They are bent to, towards backsliding. And we can all understand that idea that we are bent toward certain sin. We are bent towards certain way of thinking. And, and certainly many things come into play and kind of and can encourage or rather keep those thoughts going. And of course that idea of being bent, I love the picture... Because the idea of being bent means it's easier to push it over than to pull it up where it ought to be. And wouldn't it be wonderful if it was as easy to stand up for God as it is, as it is to fall? But we are bent that way. We are, we are leaning that way. And so it is easier. This is why young people, we always say, your friends matter so much. Because if they are beneath you, it is so much easier to pull you down than for your family and your church and those who love you to pull you up. And so he mentions these things in verse 16, if, if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, that's a key part of this, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Isn't it interesting that we are so quick to be able to answer other people's questions? When another person comes to you and says, hey, I'm struggling with Bible reading. How can I do that? Isn't it amazing how we give an answer? And yet, truthfully, if the person would turn around and say, now, do you do that? Well, I didn't say I do it. I just know how. You know, I mean, I'm just quoting Paul, just quoting scripture. That's all. That's all. Verse 19, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelt in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Notice that. When you're doing good, evil does not leave you alone. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And I love the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. I want to use this to help us illustrate what we're going to call competing wills. And we understand this. Or let's, let's reverse that. They didn't give me an eraser. Flesh over here and spirit. Competing wills. It would be wonderful if we could ever get our will to line up directly with God's will. But as long as you have a flesh, that will never fully happen. And it does us good to... Re- I think sometimes when, when there are new Christians, the reason they stumble is they think that it's possible to not have the, the pull of the flesh. And though we certainly can, can become more and, and more in the mind of Christ, and certainly the more we live for God, sometimes those temptations drop and those habits drop and... And I know for me, one of my big struggles for about four years or so was my language. And that was so difficult because I could, I could make myself not say, but how do you make yourself not think? And it takes a long time of not saying to get to the point that you don't think. And so you understand the, that this war remains. But thank God, through Him, we can get victories and and maybe, maybe you had a struggle with some sort of an addiction. Aren't you grateful that God can take that desire away as you, as you live for him and you walk for him? And, but we understand that Paul is writing here that there is a war. That is, that is the wording that he uses. There is a war. And I believe there is something in every man that enjoys a competition. I mean, we just like the idea of competing and when we think of a competition we think of an opponent we think of we think of an opposition in that there is a winner and there is a loser and my dad loved opposition and competing and he did some throughout his younger years but then he named me Tom and my brother Jerry so you know obviously he liked the show and and we lived it out pretty well, so there's that. He told you he had a rough background. You have to forgive some of the decision-making back then. <clears throat> yeah, 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 yeah. He was walking with a good friend in the hospital after my brother was born, and he started chuckling. And Dad said, what? Because they always called me Tommy. You know, Thomas is my birth name, Tommy. And then my brother's name was Gerald, named after his grandpa, and this guy starts chuckling, and Dad says, what? He goes, you have Tom and Jerry. And it was too late. It was already official. But I want to remind us that this is a daily battle. I've said to our church many times, I admire Paul to getting to the point that he only had to die daily. Because for me, it's about a five-minute matter. It's a daily battle. And I don't want to focus on this battle. I think we're very aware of it. I would say most men here, as you're striving to be what God wants you to be, you're very aware of this battle, this war. And so we certainly understand that. But I want to look at the person who desires and makes the decision to live for God. 
to be controlled by the Spirit of God, to walk in the Spirit. And, and so we're going to say this person that, that is controlled by the Spirit, this is now your life. You have made the decision today to live for God. And even when temptation, remember when you try to do good, evil is present. And so you can't stop making the decision. And so all day you're making this decision to follow God, to listen to the Spirit of God, to walk in the Spirit of God. And and when temptation comes, I mean, we're so excited that we have the ring cam. You know, you can see who's at your door. We have spiritually had a ring cam for years. We know when it's temptation and we know when it's sin and we can choose to not open the door. And so we recognize that, that we strive to live walking in the Spirit, and and certainly that is what Paul is referencing here. He wants to live for God. He wants to walk every day for God. And so as he is striving to do this, what and, and I think as we look at this person, I trust that you see yourself as a man who wants to do right. I, I told our men recently, we had a a meeting a, a couple, about a week or so ago, and I told them, we don't need good men in our churches. We have good men. We need godly men. I don't, we don't need men who can come in looking right and, and looking the part and dressed right and, and impress the guest. We need men who have spent time with God every day throughout the week so that they can be the father they're supposed to be and the husband that they're supposed to be and the example for other Christians that they are supposed to be. So this is, this is that individual, and I, I trust that that is you, to be a man that God wants you to be, the husband that your wife needs, the father that your children need, and, and really the man that God needs you to be and that God desires for you to be. But I want us to recognize in Scripture that there is another competition that takes place at this level. And I think sometimes in the Christian life, we think it's all a matter of that competing wills. The right and the wrong. The good and the evil. The righteous and the wicked. And and we're very aware of this battle. and, And it's been very evident in your response that we are all very aware of that. But as I walk this Christian life, as I strive to serve God, already getting victory here, I am going to find that there is another competing that takes place and it is for in my daily walk with God. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, we see this This war, this competing that takes place in the life of Joseph. In Matthew chapter 1, I'm very aware that this is typically a a Christmas passage. And and if we're not careful, we'll just leave it as that. But I think we're going to see something wonderful about Joseph here. In Matthew chapter 1, in verse number 18... 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I don't care what time of year it is, I say amen to that. Without question, Joseph is in a place where his world has been turned upside down. Without question. Verse 19 explains the problem. And the problem is that he has found that his espoused wife, the Mary who he was engaged to, is now expecting a child and he knows that it is not his. And so we're told of of a few things about Joseph. Well, we're not told a lot about Joseph. I think we're told a lot here in these verses. Now, I want us to be reminded that Jesus must be born without an earthly father because he could not pay for the sins of others if he had his own sin to pay for. But Joseph at this time does not understand this and he certainly doesn't know that that's what's happening. And so we find Joseph's challenge. What we are told about Joseph is that he has two virtues that are mentioned in this text. The first one that we are told is that he is a just man. That's what we know. We don't know a lot about Joseph, but we know he was just. This tells us a lot about the victory that he has here. Now, I I understand this is pre-Holy Spirit indwelling. I understand it's just we're we're looking at an application of of living for God, making that decision to live for God, to walk with God. And so Joseph, I don't think you can see that, is a just man. This is a character quality that he has. One that is given by God. One that is honored by God. It is good to be just. And so this is a, this is a character that he has. It is a virtue that he has. And, and so we find this, that being just, it is a great and a godly virtue because when you are just, what it says is that you are concerned about righteousness. So when we read that he is a just man, we are are told that Joseph is concerned about righteousness. He is concerned about the law of God, by the way, which is the same law that, that Paul said is spiritual. And so he's concerned about the law. He's concerned about righteousness. And he did not believe in being a law to himself. That's that part. That that was not what he believed. He believed in walking according to God's law. He is a just man. He wants righteousness. He wants godly. He loves the law. And so he is a just man. That is one virtue that he has, and it's mentioned here. The second virtue that he has, it's not hard to miss, 
in this text is the virtue of love. He loves Mary. Without question, he loves Mary. And so we find him... Up here we have competing wills, but in the Christian life, we have competing virtues which equal biblical balance. We have a problem in our world with men not being balanced. Biblically balanced. So Joseph has two virtues here. He loves Mary. Love is a great and godly virtue. Just like being just. He did not want her to be made a spectacle. That's what we read in the passage. He doesn't want her to be mocked in front of others. He doesn't want her to be on display. He loves her. He loves her too much for it. And, and that's many passages are running through my mind in that how God loves his own people this way. And, and so he loved her. Now, he doesn't know the whole story, but what he does know is he loves her. He still does not know whose child she is carrying. But he knows that he loves her. And so now he is, can we use the word torn, on what to do. So much so, look at verse number 20, look how it starts. But while he thought on these things. Well, what is there to think about? Joseph, this is easy. Deuteronomy chapter number 22, haven't you read? She's to be stoned and put to death. Well, if all he had was justice, that would be easy. What What do you mean? What do you mean this is a difficult decision? You love her. You're right. I should just take her and we should just go off and do our own thing and start our life. I love her too much to let her pay the price. Well, you can't do that either. Turns out it's not an easy decision. So as a result, we have Joseph taking time to think on these things. I know what the law says, but I also know that I love her. And Joseph comes to a place of biblical balance. He says, I know the law, so the law must be fulfilled. But I also know that I love her, so it will not be done publicly. Balance. If you take one without the other, and, and I think, I think we, we can get lost in this, and I trust that you're able to follow along here. The virtue of being just says she must be put to death. The virtue of love says do not do that. Protect her and don't let that happen. So what is he supposed to do? He has a reputation of being just, and so we have justice. He has a reputation for loving her, so we have love. And these two virtues 
are now competing against each other. And I think we see very clearly both of them are important. Both of them are godly. Both of them are biblical. biblical, But if you take one of these virtues by themselves, you get two completely different outcomes. Isn't that interesting? Here's the problem. This gives men in their own minds the justification to react to one because, hey, justice is a good thing. Or it gives men the justification to react to the other and say, love is of God. And because the virtue is good, we just accept it without understanding that there may be a competing virtue that will bring us to balance. Balance is achieved in physics when there is a net force zero. I don't know much about physics, and if this is wrong, it is not my fault. Google sites. Right now, I can be balanced even though gravity is pulling me down because there is a force underneath me. And when those two meet, that is a net force zero. Now, if I start leaning, I will fall. And once I hit the ground, I'll be at net force zero again. But I'd prefer not to be at net force zero down there. And the same is true in a in a side to side, if the wind is blowing, you can be pushed up against something, but once you meet that that opposite force, you can find yourself balanced. And so biblical balance comes when, when there is a net force zero of these two competing virtues that, that are in our life. And, and so if if Joseph is driven by love, she is protected. If he is driven by justice, she is put to death, which is what makes verse 20 so important. While he thought on these things. Because Joseph could have immediately acted upon the information. But he would have reacted too quickly because God had a plan. And he would have, he, he had both of these virtues and he could have certainly ran out and reacted on one of them. But rather he chose to meditate on what was taking place and he took some time to think about the situation. He refused to react quickly to one or the other. The additional virtue I would say that Joseph has is the ability to stop and find the balance of competing virtues. Tells us this, he did not want to choose justice at the expense of love. And he didn't want to choose love at the expense of justice. So he thought on these things. And of course, while he thought on these things, the Lord appeared and explained the situation. The value of competing virtues is, as I wrote, biblical balance. Balance is the result. If you're going to write anything down, this is it. Balance is the result of being true to competing virtues. 
It's a result of being true to competing virtues. It is a refusal to take the path of least resistance, which we would call reaction. It's a refusal to take the path of least resistance. Now, we're not told much about Joseph, but we are given that he took some time to think on these things, and as a result, he found some biblical balance. And I think this is a fitting time to remind us that Christ would one day hang on a cross and illustrate the perfect balance of justice and love. And aren't you glad that he did not just react to justice? It would have been possible for him to act in, it would be impossible for him to act in true love without justice. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And he knew exactly what he gave him for. There is another aspect of balance and I think this is probably the most fitting for this and I almost brought a balance beam but our vehicles were too full and I didn't want to I envisioned what that might have looked like, and it would have been awesome for the other vehicle. <laughs> 15 grown men in a 15-passenger van. That's got to be exciting, isn't it? That's why I drove the other vehicle. But if you think about a balance beam, if I were to call up someone, you know, to walk across this balance beam, you know, we might start on one end, and it might even take us a little bit of time just to get both feet on the beam, you know. Yeah, amen to that. I'm looking around. We should have made more and more amens. <laughs> you know, you get on a balance beam and you, you walk the balance beam and, you know, you try to keep your balance, but you're constantly adjusting, aren't you? At one time, the right arm goes up and then because maybe you're over, you're bringing the left side up and but as a result, you're staying balanced. I think this fits probably the most in, in this application. And there are a few things that I, I think we need to understand, and that is competing virtues are healthy. Competing virtues are healthy. Because when one pulls in one direction, if we, don't, if we don't watch ourselves, have you ever heard the statement, there's a ditch on either side? And so, so competing virtues are healthy because if we don't have a competing virtue, we end up falling in a ditch. And we'll justify it because it's a ditch of virtue. And so they bring us stability in our Christian walk as a godly man. Competing virtues bring us stability and help to keep us from falling. And so I want to quickly look at this. So it's, oh, good, 12.30 lunch. Man, that scared me. I saw after 12, I thought, oh, my. A few things we have to happen. One, we have to recognize the wisdom and the benefit 
and the existence of competing virtues. You must recognize the benefit. And if you can't start by recognizing the existence, you're never going to recognize the benefit. So you have to recognize that imbalances, they can come as a part of our past. We have strong virtues and If we're not careful, they can pull us in a direction. I know our upbringing is powerful. Dad talked about that a little bit. And, you know, the way that we are trained. I've I've heard men in our church, and they'll be so hard on justice, and they'll say, well, I'm a military man. Well, that doesn't mean you can't love. And it doesn't mean you have to live in the ditch of justice just because military is positive. And thank God you served. I'm very grateful for you. And we need more good men serving. And, and, but, but that's not, it's not an excuse to live in a ditch. Well, my family's all about order. Well, sure it is. And there ought to be order. But there ought to be love and compassion and fun and, and some enjoyable times as well. And I know for you, push-ups are fun, but probably not for little Johnny, you know. <laughs> Dad talked about being raised in a home that was, you know, you knew you were loved, but it wasn't said. And you could say, that's a virtue, the fact that you know you're loved without ever being told. I mean, you know, obviously there was some sort of expression that was there or some understood things, but that's not balanced. There must be competing virtues in order for there to be balance. Let me give you a few quick things. Our imbalance can cause us to cry compromise of others because of our own lack of balance. Somebody who's a disciplinarian will cry compromise to the person who seems too loving. You're not hard enough. Those kids are going to walk all over you. And the person who's loving will turn to the other person and say, I can't believe how hard they are on their kids. Those kids are going to run first chance they get. The truth is, both of them might be right. There is a balance. And if we're not careful, we'll, t- we'll live in one ditch and point fingers at the other ditch while they're living in this ditch, pointing fingers at that ditch, and neither one of them are on the road. So, so we can point, we can point, and we can, and, and please, I trust that you, this is after you've determined to live for God because, because your virtue is a good virtue. But yet the fact that they are competing helps to keep us in this place of balance and not being on, on, in the ditch of, of one side or the other. And so we, of course, if you're, well, I already mentioned that, loving and discipline and and we can find ourselves, but rather we must learn to accept that we need the stability that comes from competing virtues. We are less prone to fall when we accept that there are competing virtues. So that means this. We must learn to struggle with both rather than reacting to one. You must learn to struggle with both instead of reacting to one.
our best times as a Christian is when we pause before we react. And we think, what is the competing virtue? Where is balance? Let me give you some examples that are in Scripture for this. And I'll give one, and I think you'll be able to give the other. Zeal. What's the competing virtue? Knowledge. See, some of you thought I was just making this up. Isn't that what the book says? I'm zeal, zeal. Good. To be fired up is a good thing. To be ready to go is a good thing. To say, I am hungry, let's go. What are you guys waiting on? It's 4 a.m. I mean, let's go. Let's get fired up. It's Monday morning, 8 o'clock. Who have you led to the Lord this week? You know, I mean, there's zeal. And by the way, there ought to be zeal. But zeal without knowledge is out of balance. Well, then what about the person that's all knowledge? Well, I'm just, you guys go ahead. I'm just going to keep studying. I'm going to learn something here. There's another word for that. We won't use it today because somebody will get offended. Might be lazy or something like that. (laughs) But zeal and knowledge. And I'm going to go through this list fairly quickly, but I think it will give you the exact application of this principle. I'm not even worried about whether or not you get this list, but you need to get the principle. Zeal versus knowledge. How about in our speaking, truth and love? Well, you know me, I just speak the truth. Your breath stinks, brother. Well, I mean, come on. There's a, there's a loving way to say it, you know, like. You know? Two different people handed me that today, so I figured, I get it, I get it. Well, I'm just going to tell them the truth. And as a result, they hear the truth, but they're not, they're not sure it came from someone who loves them. Or you can speak in love so much they don't even know what you were trying to tell them. Well, brother, you know I love you and just, you know, I think, you know things are going and you mean a lot to me. And, and, you know, I just feel like we needed to talk. And, brother, you're like a best friend to me. That was a good talk. <laughs> All right, brother. Have a good day. I'm glad you love me. Truth and love. How about this one? I think many men will understand this. How about family and ministry? I'm not going to keep making the list. Should you be involved and active at your church? I'll ask that again. Should you be involved and active at your church? Should you spend time with family? But there's a balance. You are not a godly man if all your time is with your family and never serving in the church that God put you in. That's not godliness. That's a ditch. 
Yeah, but family is good. Of course it is. We already established that. We're, we're, we're serving God. We are walking in the way that God wants us to walk. We are focused on being a Christian. And it's good, and I'll say this to, to us as men, since the wives are not here, you are the one who must explain this to your wife. It is not the job of your pastor to get up and say, you need to let your husband come to church more. You ought to have established that a long time ago to be balanced. How about those who, and I'm going to hit some that may not apply to everybody, but how about when it comes to our churches being timely, but also being timeless? I mean, I'm glad we didn't walk in today to 1960s paneling. You know what I mean? Or 70s, whenever it was. I wasn't even born in the 60s. 80s? I don't know. When was paneling? Some people are like, uh, our church. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Start a building fund. I think we ought to be time. Thank God for this beautiful building. I mean, thank God that for the facilities that we can be timely when indoor plumbing came. I I mean, Baptists, we fight everything. I don't know if we fought that or not, but I'm glad we got on board. (laughs) I mean, we ought to be timely. But if we're not careful, and we see this all over, and, and I trust that this is not your church, but you can be so enamored with being timely that you forget that we are timeless. We are serving a God of yesterday, today, and forever. And though we ought to be timely, I remind you, the message of God's word is always timely. So timely versus timeless. And if we're not careful, we'll get so fixated on timeless that we don't put any money in updating the building because it's all about missions. Everybody see how this can be a difficult thing to lay out? How important are missions? I mean, you're not going to say, ah, 80, 20. It is 100% important. But how important is it that God's house looks nice? It is 100% important. And so we can find ourselves in a ditch on either side here. And it ought to be good for some men to back up their pastors in finding this balance. As he strives to keep the message straight and the building up to date. How about in preaching or maybe a Sunday school class, content versus delivery? I mean, we don't, we don't put all of our attention on the delivery. We are not a show, and I am not interested in entertaining a single person. But if all I do is get up and read what I've studied, we'd have all been asleep by now. There is a thought that goes into the delivery And it's not because we, don't miss this, this is the difference between us and a lot. It's not because we want to be viewed as a good entertainer or speaker. It's because what we're saying is important and we want to lay it out in the best possible way for the people of God to get a hold of it and apply it to their lives. And so there is thought that is put into not taking the place of the Holy Spirit, not even trying to convict a single person, but to say, God, help me to explain this and to expound upon this in a way that that these people can grasp it and get a hold of it. 
But there can be a ditch. You can, you can be so worried about the delivery, you don't study anything. All you do is watch the new modern liberal preacher so you know how to hold your hands right. Or, or you refuse to go down that road and it's all about the expository and you're as boring, as boring, as boring can be. I think everybody, yeah, I was quiet. And I'm an expository preacher. That was not a bash on expository preaching. But obviously I'll move on. How about, how about authority and humility? Do you realize every man here, you have a, both a position of humility and a position of authority in your life? Not over my wife. I'm full authority. Submit yourselves one, two. Okay. You know what that means? There are some areas. You know what? My kids to this day, they ask me if they can have something to eat. I have told them for, well, Levi's 19 years old. For, yeah, he started eating at one. So 19 years. <laughs> ask your mom. I don't buy the groceries. I don't put together the grocery plan. I have no idea the use or the plan for the food that's in the cabinet. But they know mom's probably going to say no. And so they come and ask dad. And I have never once given a different answer. Go ask your mom. Go ask your mom. You know what I'm doing? I am submitting that to her. That means in the same house I have to know when to have authority and I have to know when to have submission. Humility. Humility. You realize in a church there are times when you have to speak with authority and then the times you come in with humility. All in the same service. Perhaps you're a head usher and there might be a time when out of authority you're telling somebody to get somewhere but then a visitor walks in and you want to be a servant to that person. I hope nobody here thinks just because you have a position you have authority over everybody. Surely we don't have that problem. But there is balance. Biblical balance. That keeps us off the ditch. Now remember the, remember the balance beam? That's going to get real practical, practical right here. How about this for, your, for your, the pastors? Pastoring versus preaching. We can't spend all our time out with the people because we have to preach. And if we spend all our time with you after service, you're like, boy, he didn't have much for us today. And if we spend our time in the study and bring something to the pulpit, then you're saying, well, yeah, he has something to preach. He doesn't spend time with any people. Well, there's a balance. And so we as pastors, now remember, there may be some weeks that call for us to be more with people. Pastoring. And there are some weeks that call for us to be more in the study. Different things are coming. So it's not a matter of a 50-50. It's a matter of walking balanced in the big picture. And so we have these competing virtues that are fighting for one another. And we understand this in pastoring versus preaching. And truth is, many have their needs met through preaching. There's a lot of pastoring. It's interesting to me. I would say 90% of the people that want counsel are not at church three times a week. 
And so that's the first advice. All right, we, we have automatically said in this church, we have three free council sessions every week. Every week, four actually, four. Four free, I was just seeing who dropped Sunday school around here. Four, four, four free council sessions. So here's what I'll do. You show up to those free ones for four months. And if you don't miss a one, I'll give you another free one. How's that? But if you, if you really want this, you'll show up to those four. And so this lets me know how much you really want help. Now, you and I all know there are things that need urgent attention. I'm, I'm not laying this out as a rule. I'm simply saying we do have a lot of pastoring that takes place in the preaching. I like one preacher. He said it this way. He said, and I'll just say it to, to you because it's fun. He says, you don't have a problem when I preach what I study. You just have a problem when I preach what I see. How's that? I'll just stick to the book, preacher. Just stick to the book. I know what that... If somebody says, I left a church because he just didn't preach a Bible, it means he called out my sin. That's all it means. And so I try to find out what it is as quickly as I can. How about this one? Financially, men. Giving versus saving. You know both of those are biblically important? Proverbs chapter 11 verse 16 says it this way, a strong man retain riches. It takes a strong man to be disciplined with money. It takes a strong man to put finances aside. In fact, he goes on in Ecclesiastes 5.19, Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. Nothing wrong with having riches or wealth or, or the, the things that you need to survive, and, and a strong, strong men retain riches, in fact, Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. My dad's got like 104 of those. <laughs> one dollar each, one dollar each, children. It never does say how much. <laughs> but then we have every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly. For God loveth a cheerful giver. First Timothy chapter 6 says, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute. That's what he says. But you know what can happen? We can get in... We can get in a ditch, and I think this has hurt our churches more than, more than anything else. People get in a ditch of saving, and they don't give for nothing. Well, I put $10 on the love offering. Well, good. When he calls us in 60 miles because he ran out of gas, I'm calling you. Well, I got to save. I got to save. I got to retire, brother. I got to. Sure you do. 
But if your retirement and your whole financial plan doesn't have anything to do with God or God providing or faith or anything like that, you have taken a whole category of life and said, God, I don't need you. I have this one. But then we have the others that are over here saying, you know, you just got to give, you just got to give, you just got to give. And then when their wife can't buy groceries, they blame the church and the preacher. And you as a man might feel like we're being godly, but your wife is second guessing this Christian thing. Everybody okay so far? I'm not supposed to ask that. I was told last week I'm not supposed to ask that. I hope you're not all right. But there's a ditch. I think you see enough biblical applications to get this point. And there's so many. Public life and private life. You got to take time for both. There's a balance. It would do our churches well if we had biblically balanced men. Because there's not just one competition in your life. It's not just competing wills. But once you make that decision to live for God, if you're going to be balanced, you have to recognize competing virtues. This principle was introduced to me by a preacher in Oklahoma, Wayne Hardy. And he sat down and explained this whole, and it changed my thinking as a man. And through his permission, he's allowed me to share this principle and put it into this own format. But I feel it's necessary to at least give him the credit for, for the thought. But I trust and I hope and pray that it can do for you what it did for me. And competing virtues and biblical balance. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we're so grateful for your word. And I pray that this principle can be understood, can be accepted. And Lord, that it can mean something to some men here who maybe have been living a little off balance. And maybe because their area of out of balance is a virtue, maybe they've justified it. Or maybe they have expected others to accept it. God, I pray that we can just examine ourselves and find biblical balance through competing virtues. And in Jesus' name.